This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Electric Aviation takes a step forward. And Redbird hosted their annual migration and helped give out some flight training awards. NavWorks owners, be on the lookout for an AD. And we need to say goodbye to aviation legend Bob Hoover. All right, David, you ready to do the show? Let's do it, Ian. All right, welcome to Hangar Talk. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And David, um, first story, it's uh, it's going to be a little bit in the weeds as far as the technical stuff goes, but I think the overall point here is really important, and that's that Pipistrel signed an agreement with the Chinese uh, to help develop some electric aircraft technology. And I think this is a good thing for aviation. We're looking at being uh, economically feasible for a lot of people, and this just might do the trick if you're just going around the patch. Yeah, you know, the... Um, Pipistrel, it's a really fun little company. They, you know, they're in Slovenia and uh, they don't have a real strong U.S. presence. But um, I like, I think of them kind of as an engineering company. They have all kinds of cool different products. One of them being this little electric uh, two-seat aircraft. Yeah, that Pipistrel airplane is pretty cool. It's it, cute. It is cool. It is cool. And so, uh, you know, Tom Horn flew that uh, for AOPA maybe a year ago now. Yeah. And he said it was super cool. You know, I, when he came back, I, I hadn't given electric much thought, but when he came back, I thought there really is a future here because they flew for like an hour. They did. Um, took it around the pattern, went out to the practice area, and it's just, it's phenomenal. They Pipistrel uses the battery swap. So it's like you get down on the ground, you open a little compartment, swap out batteries, put fresh ones in. Oh, neat. So that Probably doesn't take that long. No, no. I mean, less time than refueling, really. Have one, so. have one on deck, charged up, ready to go. Yeah. And it's really a keen idea, I think, for flight training, being mm-hmm. in the pattern, mm-hmm. doing touch and goes, that kind of thing, all your basic flight maneuvers, you don't need to get that far from the airport environment in the first place. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's funny, actually, automotive technology is is helping here because I think people will accept electric aircraft more really because of uh, Prius. And oh, I had a Prius. I accept that technology 100%. Did you have one? I yeah. did. Yeah, we have one now. Oh, yeah. Um, 
I just think the thing is incredible technologically. I'm blown away by it. That whole technology has come a long way. I was impressed with the with the Toyota vehicle. I'm waiting for them to have an airplane. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? But but they did prove the concept. A lot of people were very uh, worried about the batteries not holding their charge, or yep. you'd have to swap them out after a number of years. Yeah. I did not see that as the case at all when I had my car. No, I didn't. You know, we haven't either, and um, I think I, I don't see it as a widespread issue at all. And of course, Tesla now. Yeah. You know the the owner satisfaction scores when you look at that kind of stuff they're through the roof. They're and, proving the concept. For yeah, sure. they really have, and, and so prices um, come down a lot too. It has, although man, a Tesla. Well, they yeah. are. Their Tesla's coming out with a um, a less expensive vehicle. Mm. Uh, more for the everyman. Yeah, that's But you're true. right. Their flagship is is pretty expensive right now. Yeah, but the cool thing about aviation is, you know, it's like we're already expensive, right? Well, and anything to do to bring it down is, yeah. is a good thing. Yeah. Get more people involved. That's right. So these, this electric motor in the Pipistrol, first of all, it's a TBR. So you, you pick it up, you throw it away, you get a new one. Replace it. Yep. And I think it was like eight or 10,000 hours. Uh-huh. That's a good amount of time. It is. And it was like a $10,000 motor. So it's about a thousand eight hundred to a thousand dollars per thousand hours. Yeah, some my math is yeah. great. Yeah, what is that? Like a buck an hour or whatever? That's pretty good. Pretty good money. Good return, I would yeah. say. Yeah, I like so, it. It's pretty amazing stuff. And of course, you know, it costs a couple of bucks to charge, and so that really could um, be a difference maker in terms of. Uh, you know, the financial impact. So. That's really, really neat. It's interesting where technology is going. And of course, um, you know, pilots would be worried about their navigation systems and what happens if the power goes out. But I guess if you're not that far from the airport, yeah, you'll be okay. Yeah. And I think, you know, just like anything else, they'll certify redundancies into the systems. Sure. And so sounds good. Yeah. I, it's cool. But anyway, this, so this deal, I think they signed with the Chinese. I mean, a lot of the details aren't terribly interesting or important right now. You know, it's like, they're set up to produce some airplanes and some manufacturing and other things. Um, the The biggest surprise to me is this 19-seat um, hybrid electric technology and hydrogen fuel cell. Which wow, that's a mouthful. Yeah, something <laughs> we haven't seen yet. 19-seater. That's yeah. a big boy. Yeah, yeah. So they think that the potential's there for that. Well, you know, there are plenty of places in the world that don't, use avgas yeah. right now yeah and um, you can have you can have problems if you're off in another continent mm -hmm. you know and you can't get fuel so something like this might be the ticket for those out of the way places yeah Absolutely. That's true. I can That's see really that. true. Yeah, because yeah. there's outlets in most parts of the world, right? Yeah. So, and of course, the next thing would be marrying that up with solar cells as well. Yep. That's another concept that has been proven as a concept. Yeah. But uh, it remains to be seen if we can get that many solar cells operating in an efficient level in a, an aircraft that would be conducive to local airport environments. Yeah. So funny you mentioned that, actually, because George Bai, a guy who um, is trying to pioneer that with this aeroelectric corporation aircraft, the Sunflyer. Uh-huh. Uh, he was at migration. This That's right. Migration. Okay. Um, and which is, you know, our fourth story. And, uh, migration is the next story coming up. Yeah. Tell us right. what you learned at migration. <laughs> Ian. And now I did, I did remember that he was there as mm -hmm. well as uh, other folks, but for, before we jump on him, let's let people know what migration is for folks that are not in the industry. Yeah. So it's a good point. Um, Redbird, the simulator company, mm -hmm. um, they do, it, it's, it's a really hard to describe event, actually. You know, when, when I talk to people about it, it's like, well, it's it's sort of a conference. You know, it's like your wife says, well, where are you headed to? And you're like, I, well, I don't really know. It's like it's a conference. It's also a customer meeting. Um, you know, most of the attendees are their customers. It's you also know, You know something unusual is going to happen. Yeah, yeah. It's also team building. Uh-huh, big time. Um, but then they have speakers that feel like a TED talk. 
So it's like aviation luminaries. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you get everybody from uh, flight school owners to uh, aircraft uh, CEOs, like yeah, Dale Clatmeyer was there. Cirrus Aircraft CEO. Yeah. Yep. Yep. They talk, obviously, about their products uh-huh. um, because they host it. And it, it goes beyond that. Like the one of the more interesting talks was this guy um, from Passer, the, the CEO, and they do big data stuff oh, uh, with the airlines. That's right. And that's fascinating. It is so, cool stuff. Yeah. it's uh, And, of course, the thing that, that everyone remembers is this, what they've been doing the past couple of years, this team building event. Right. Uh, which it's a this, lot of fun. You yeah, guys did some fun. stuff with tuxedos and cheese whiz last year. Last year. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, thankfully, they've asked me to judge, so I haven't actually had to participate yet. But uh, <laughs> but y'all's event this year sounded like a whole lot of fun, too. Yeah. It was, um, it was something right out of like a STEM class. They gave you a box uh-huh. with a bunch of random materials in it, and they said, build an airplane. Science, technology, engineering, and math. Yep. In action. Yep. Um, so you, it was you, fun. You told me that you were watching the uh, president and CEO of Piper yeah. build an airplane. Yeah. Yeah. Simon Caldecott. And so yeah. it's like here you have George By, who's, yeah. um, you know, pioneering, trying to this this solar electric uh, aircraft for the masses. And he's judging this model airplane contest where the, the CEO of Piper has just built one. And uh, and is about to fl- about to throw it. So uh, it's it's kind of surreal, but it's it's cool. It's fun. And you know what? All of our podcast listeners are going to, are going to want to know how did Simon Caldecott do when he threw his airplane? <laughs> As I recall, it was a bit of a dud. Oh no! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't say that to our folks, our yeah. Piper lovers. Uh, it was. I believe it was a bit of a dud. Yeah. Um, it is actually cool to see like different designs that people come up with. In fact, we had to judge ahead of time. One of the categories was. Um, least likely to find an insurance underwriter. Oh, my. So another nice way of saying, like, you know, has no chance, right? (laughs) Oh, right, right. And so there was this one that was like a stick, and uh, one of the materials was um, baseball cards. Uh Uh, I'm sorry, uh, playing cards. And so it was like a stick, a couple playing cards, and a little plastic prop. And I thought, this thing is not going anywhere. There's no wings. There's no tail. There's nothing. Oh, but it's very streamlined. Well, they put it vertically. Oh, and made a helicopter. Oh my! And because one of the winning categories is shortest takeoff distance, uh, vertical lift, there and it's go. brilliant. And I thought, gosh, this is awesome! Like How neat. the different ideas people come up with. So, so really, it's a lot of rah rah, Cisco stuff. Really got you charged. Yeah, you got the people there in the aviation education business charged and invigorated, and yeah. flight school owners as well, and some teachers. That's right. Well, also a cool thing at Redbird this year, they hosted our. Uh, Flight Excellence Awards. Yeah, this is the first time they've done that. Um, This has kind of moved around for us. We did it at Summit when we were doing those, and we did it at our fly-in when it was at AOPA, and last year just kind of in the office. And so we wanted to give it a big venue, so um, we reached out to Redbird, and they graciously agreed. The 2016 Flight Training Excellence Awards. Yeah. And there were a lot of entries into that. Yeah, there were. It keeps growing and growing. I think over 11,000, if I remember. That's incredible. And the whole thing about the Flight Training Excellence Awards is really what happens after that. It's Mm -hmm. the, the fact that... You're trying to get your your students to respond, and you're learning how to do things better, and you're opening your doors to a more professional organization. Mm-hmm. And you guys are sharing some of those ideas, I think, at the Redbird migration also. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that's a real key thing. And the the poll awards, uh, some, the, some of the folks who won, in fact, most of them were there yeah. to accept their awards. Yeah, that was really cool. That was really cool to meet them. So, yeah, it's all based on this study that AOPA did about, boy, it's, it's going back at least five years now. 
And the study looked at the ideal flight training experience, yeah. basically, and came up with something like 42 factors that they said influenced a student's success. Mm-hmm. And it was everything from could you actually get on the schedule to how decent is your instructor, do you use a syllabus, that sort of thing. And so that information has been crafted then into a series of questions that people answer, the yeah. poll. And in the poll results directly. So these awards come directly from customer feedback. And really, that's the, the key thing. And yeah. so if you are a flight school owner mm-hmm. or a teacher, that's good feedback for you to go to school on yourself. Yep. It's like you being back in class. Yep. Learn how to do it better. Yep. So that it's a more positive experience for folks like me who are going to be your students. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so the idea is kind of twofold. I mean, one is to, as you say, it's to sort of help educate and let the schools and instructors know where they are and what they can improve on. We, mm-hmm. we give them back a report card. But then it's also a way for us to say to people who come to AOPA, you know, where should I learn to fly? Well, now we have this list and we can say unequivocally, well, customers love these flight schools. And so we think you'll probably end up having a really good experience here. I think that's a positive thing. I remember when I first learned, uh, when I was first learning how to fly back in Atlanta, uh, I really enjoyed it. It was a great place, very personable, really easy to talk to the folks there, the instructors, as well as um, the owner of the flight school. And it was a clean shop, you know, very professional looking. But I have also walked to a different part of the field where I learned back in Atlanta and, uh, and it was the proverbial couple of old trade plane magazines mm. laid out on a desk, and the couches were kind of well-worn, yeah. and when the phone rang, no one really answered. Yeah. And so that's not the way to recruit new potential pilots. No, it's yeah. not. But it's, uh, not, it's you know maybe nice if you're in a club and you just want to hang out. That's but different. Yeah, yeah. Then you yeah. want your already couch yeah. and refrigerator. And stuff. Yeah, that's right. So what? some of the standouts of flight training professionals based out of uh, Executive Airport in Orlando, mm-hmm. they were winners. Yep, top flight school. And Brenda Tibbs went out on her own uh, at Bravo Flight Training. That's here in Frederick, Maryland. Yep, that's right. So she scored a big win there. And then uh, nine other flight schools and 10 more instructors judged to be outstanding. Yeah, so we have three criteria based on where you fall in those results. Um, we name one best in each uh-huh. category. Yeah. And then depending on, I think it's, don't quote me on the numbers here, it's it's like 85% or above or 80% or above. So 80, I think it's 85 is the outstandings. And then if you're 80% or above, you're an honor roll. And nice. so it's, um, yeah, based strictly on the data. And Students' Choice Award was given a Paragon flight of Fort Myers. Now, I, their name is familiar to me. Yeah, because they're a former best winner. There so, you go. Yeah, so they, they, Students' Choice means they got the most poll completions. So they actually, they know how to do it, and they're doing it right, and they're continuing to do it in the right way. Yeah. Yep. So that's great to hear about the, the awards down there at, at Redbird and uh, the Flight Training Excellence Awards. Yeah, that's yeah, a cool program. And we have another story we want to talk a little bit more about. The NavWorks UATs. Mm-hmm. This is the ADSB situation that has come up. And I, I'm just trying to get up to speed on this uh, as a potential airplane owner. I would be alarmed if the FAA got back to me and said the ADSB receiver that I put in my aircraft was no longer valid to be part of their rebate program. Yeah. So th- this has just come out in the past week or so. It's uh, it's a shame, really. I mean, I think a lot of people were excited by the NavWork box because... Yeah. It was a cheaper alternative. Yeah. Uh, we put one in an airplane and uh, had a good experience with the installation. It worked well. Yep. And, of course, FAA certified it. They met the te- the uh, the TSO, the Technical Standard Order. 
So everything seemed fine, right? It did. And then uh, just a couple weeks ago, we find out, well, they're not eligible in the rebate program. First clue, things were heading in the wrong direction. Yeah. And then and then the AD comes out that basically says, if you have one of these, rip it out. You have to take it out of your plane. Yeah. And how many people put them in? You said 800 or Yeah, so? about 800. So for those folks, that's a tough pill to swallow. It is. Yeah. Interestingly, they say it's because of inaccurate position data having to do with the WASP GPS and that just not being up to the standard. And so... Interestingly, though, the CEO came back and said, mm, we think the data's fine. NAPWorks said yeah. it's okay. Um, you haven't told us that it's incorrect. And that's true. They haven't. Yeah. FAA did not. Other than, this AD, than the AD. And so what gives, basically? I think there's more to this story. Yeah, I think there is. And so, we, you know, we're obviously our government affairs folks are watching it. Uh, we'll comment on the AD. But it is, um, you know, the growing pains of... of um, New technology. Yeah. And people who are early adopters. Yeah. I mean, these folks really were trying to do the right thing. Yeah. As I would and as you would, and a lot of owners would try to be ahead of the curve. And uh, it looks like that, that just sometimes things don't work out. But I think there's got to be more to it. Yeah. And I'd say... I to, hope so. To our podcasters listening, I would say to stay tuned on that one. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, sad news. You uh, you teed this one. Um, we've we've lost another another giant. Another giant in aviation, Bob Hoover. I, I must say, I've never met the man, but I was at an event, at a National Aviation Day event here in Washington D.C., where Kim first showed the, her movie, documentary movie about Bob Hoover, and you could just tell that this was a man who embraced aviation and was a gentleman to boot. Yeah, he. Um, in fact, I was thinking about him as I was reading all the, the obituaries and the remembrances and, you know, Dave Hirschman and I did a, a flight suit dog fight. Uh -huh. And I wish that I would have at the time made this connection. Cause he, he, um, cracks me up. You know, he was known for his Panama hat. Yeah. Always wore the hat, but he also performed a lot in, in like a suit, a regular three piece suit. Yeah. You know, yeah. he didn't wear a flight suit. And yeah. so it's like, it's good enough for Bob Hoover. It's good enough for me. Right? Yeah. That would have been a good dog fight. <laughs> yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. So I wish I would have remembered that line, but, um, he was uh, really one of a kind. You know, everyone says he's the best stick and rudder pilot who ever lived. Yeah, and that's never never see another one like him. Yep, yeah. and and that's because um, I think it was Jimmy Doolittle actually gave him that title. So that is something that uh, that means a lot, I think. And Bob Hoover was flying wing when uh, Chuck Yeager was mm -hmm. in what the the X one X fifteen. Which one was it? Yeah, it knows the X one when X1. he broke the sound barrier. Yeah, and then uh, and the other thing that you you mentioned briefly. Um, about Bob Hoover is that when he did his flight shows, he would wear a regular three-piece suit. And uh, I read uh, in Tom Haynes' excellent article, which I shared on Facebook, and by the way, this is a wonderful article and uh, a real, real well-written tribute. But um, Bob Hoover wore a regular suit because he said he wanted to be like the every man. Hmm. He, that's the way he lived his life and the way he, he taught things. Yeah. And he didn't want to look like a quote-unquote pilot, you know, yeah. with a special suit, yeah. flight suit, Nomex and everything like that. Yeah. You know, you mentioned um, it's almost a shame that it, you know, it takes somebody passing to, to sort of pay attention. I, although I will say with Hoover, past couple of years he's been to Oshkosh because people make an effort to bring him. Yeah. Um, they've made the film about him and uh, I think written a somewhat recent book. And I think people get it. They they knew that, that he wasn't going to be with us forever and, and they tried to celebrate him while he was here. But, it, but still, you know, you start to pay attention more when they pass. Yeah. And so I was reading, you mentioned about the flying wing on Jaeger. Uh -huh. And uh, I didn't know that he apparently was, Hoover was, they were sort of in competition together to be able to fly to that flight. To get to that point, yeah, yeah, and to be chosen. Yeah, 
And he, I guess when he was uh, back east or something, buzzed a friend's house uh-huh. and got relegated to the wing position. Oh, is that what happened? Yeah. I thought he had a it. cold or something. Yeah. So oh, he was on he was on super secret probation. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Double so. super secret probation. Yeah. Well, um, now he, his, he did his routine in a Shrike Commander. And yep. one of the notables about that for folks who haven't seen the movie, which they should check it out if they can was that he would do this whole routine with both engines and one engine, then no engines. Yeah. And we're talking about eight-point rolls, inverted flight, and he would taxi right up t- to the ramp, kind of right where he started at show center. Yeah. Uh, just an incredible showman. Yeah, the pilot. ultimate in uh, energy management, right? Yeah. So yeah. Flying the Feathered Edge is the movie. Yep. And uh, we ought to mention real quick that AOPA um, actually is involved a little bit more in honoring Bob Hoover because we are, I think we are helping to administer the annual Bob Hoover Award, is yeah. that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So I think there's a lot more to be said about him. I uh, wish I met him in person. And to all those folks who did, uh, we mourn Bob's loss as much as you do. And we hope someone else will come and take his place, but it doesn't look likely. Yeah, I know. It's, um, and it is a shame because I think he, there aren't many sort of giant personalities left from the era. You yeah. Know? He was definitely one. He so. was up there. Yeah. All right. So from uh, somebody passing to, to something born now, um, nice. the Cirrus Jet. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> Let's celebrate. Yeah. Certified. Certified. My goodness, that's big news. Yep. Officially uh, announced yesterday, uh, the 30th of October, Cirrus uh, Vision Jet certified. They say, we were talking about this around the office, so I'm curious uh, if listeners can verify because because we think actually they're right. First single engine personal jet, basically civilian jet certified. That is incredible. I love it. Yeah. And this is a really neat design, too. It's got that a is cool. distinctive V-tail, and it's a seven-seater. I like it. Yeah. I'd like to fly one myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, so obviously for their, you know, for Sirius, it's a huge deal. They've, they've been working really hard on it. What it means for them is having an airplane that their customers can step up to. Yeah. Regular line of Cirrus. Yep. Sell uh, them an SR and, uh-huh. then, uh, and then sell them a jet. Uh, of course, it has the uh, parachute, which I just think is incredible. It'll be uh, fascinating to see, not to be morbid about it, but fascinating to see the first one of those deployed yeah. in the field and, and kind of what the circumstances are and how it works. Mm-hmm. So definitely, definitely a proven idea. Yep. Yep. No it's doubt. True. No um, doubt. Now, like that safety factor. Yep. I think a lot of significant others will probably like that too. Yeah. What's your feeling on the parachute? You know, it's interesting. I'm glad you asked. I think it would be great to have that. I was wondering um, how hard it would be to put something like that into... Some of the legend, uh, I'm sorry, some of the uh, legacy aircraft that we have, like the 172s and the 182s, I know you can get one for a 182 Cessna, but I think that um, the weight penalty is a little high for a a typical 172. But I think that is a cool idea. Um, I would love to have backup like that. I still think it's uh, beneficial to pilots to train to the edge of the envelope yeah. and be able to recognize when you're getting ready to have a problem and bring it back from that problem without yeah. having to deploy something like a parachute. That's a good point. You know, I, I was torn on it. I guess I thought some people, I just assumed maybe that some people used it as a crutch and deployed too early or Something like that. But, you know, two things have sort of changed my mind. One is their accident record. Well, I should say their fatality record, uh-huh. which has just dropped off a cliff. I mean, it's become one of the safest aircraft. That's good. Um, I think through the training. And that's the thing. Like, you can't just put the chute in the airplane and expect it to work. Klatmar was talking about this in migration. Uh-huh. You, they, they realized, you know, that in fact, when they first started selling them, it's like they said, well, we've engineered the safest airplane in, in the world. Uh, here are the keys. See ya. 
Yeah. And uh, and then they, they quickly sort of realize it's like, oh, wait, you actually have to train people how to use this and stuff. You need more training even. Yeah, that's right. And you have to completely change their mindset Yeah. Um, to where a shoot is part of that whole emergency uh, procedure and everything else. And so. you really, as a pilot, you have to make that command decision when to pull the shoot. Yeah. Yeah. You probably have to be in the, the right orientation to pull it, yep. the right speed. I know there was one pretty high-profile case where uh, the pilot got in, in a bad situation in the mountains and pulled the, hmm. the chute and it was going too fast, and yeah. it did not do any good. Yeah, and I think that you can imagine as, as the people who have designed that airplane how frustrating that must be to know that you've designed a system that could have saved their life and they chose not to deploy. Yeah. So. So yeah, it's the, it's seeing the safety record and seeing how much success they've had. And then the second thing was actually that midair we had here at Frederick. Okay. Um, when the helicopter and the Cirrus came together, you know, the unfortunately everybody in the helicopter, um, no nobody made it. And uh, but the Cirrus, you know, they were below pattern altitude, so they were maybe seven to eight hundred feet AGL. I can't remember exactly. Okay. Pulled the chute, totally uninjured. And no they kidding. Lo- yeah, and they lost an aileron. I mean, it was wow. like I'm convinced they would have died. Um, and so the chute slowed them down just enough where they land. They basically landed vertically. Yeah, yeah. They landed in some trees uh-huh. and uh, got out no problem. And that was it. They walked away. That's a pretty good testament to how yeah. well it works at a low altitude. Yeah. I mean, you really could. You couldn't have made it back to the airport at that low of an altitude. We talked yeah. about that that impossible turn. That's one instance where there it was right there. Yeah. Yep. Goodness. Okay. So I think the jets, it's a big deal. It'll be, uh, it'll be great. We can't wait to fly it. Um, that'll obviously be all over the place when we do, you know, the magazine C- and online. Certified to 28,000 feet, 300 knots. Yep. Yeah. Man, I can't wait to see those pictures. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So now this week, our guest, speaking of jets. Uh-huh. Let's talk about jets. Yeah. You talked with a guy who gets to fly all of them. Oh, man. We're talking about Boeing's. Yeah. Steven Taylor. Yeah. He was a cool guy. We met him uh, earlier this summer, took us around, and took 100 lucky AOPA members through the Boeing factory on a factory tour. And so uh, Stephen was a good guy. He's a GA pilot as well. He's got three airplanes. Uh, put me on the spot now, but I think a Republic CB, a Cessna 180, and an Aerostar. So, really? Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. an eclectic mix. It is. Yeah. And, uh, and he does fly every one of Boeing's aircraft. I asked him how hard was it to jump from one airplane to another to another. And yeah. you know what he told me? What? You're just going to have to listen to the podcast. I'm not going <laughs> to tell you. <laughs> what are you like the nightly news? That's so mean. <laughs> I tell you. Coming up next, Stephen Taylor from Boeing. Hi, everybody. This is David Tulis for another edition of Hangar Talk, and we have a special guest with us here today at AirVenture. We're talking with Steve Taylor, the chief pilot for Boeing. How are you, Steve? Great. Thanks for uh, having me, David. This is fun. You're welcome. All right. Now, you just told me right before we got here a little secret about how you flew in today. Yeah, I came on, and fortunately, in a 737, but I came on Southwest Airlines, which I think is the first time in about 40 years that I've come commercially. So at least it was one of your own, right? That's right. At least it was a Boeing product. Now, the Boeing products that come out of the factory in Everett, there are several of those aircraft. Tell us a little bit about each one that comes out of the Everett factory where I met you last month. Sure. Yeah. Well, we got to take a quick tour of that factory. And of course, as we mentioned, it's the largest building in the world by volume. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you need a building that big to build 747s, Uh 767s, 777s, and 787s, all of which are built in that one building. Yeah. Now, I asked you a a question back then. I don't know if you remembered it or not. My question is this. 
How the heck do you remember how to fly each and every one of those planes? They're all different. Uh, yeah, what, what do you do? As I mentioned, I'm type rated in all of the current Boeing products, and uh, I keep my currency on most of them. Yeah. Uh, and the way that it works with the Boeing products is that they, uh, by design, are so similar between the different airplanes. So uh, our normal procedures and even most of our non-normal procedures are almost identical across the airplanes. And certainly the philosophy is identical across the airplanes. So... Uh, you know, from a checklist point of view, you literally just set all the switches sort of uh, with the same scan flow pattern that you would use on any airplane. Yeah. And you'll be within, uh, you know, millimeters of having it right on the first try. So no it's, kidding. it's actually really very easy to move between those airplanes, which is by design and by intent. Is that so that pilots um, that are flying those, you know, jetliners, commercial pilots, so they can move within the, the lineup? Exactly. It's, uh, you know, the training expenses for our customers to move pilots from one airplane to another is a significant factor. So the more that we can make those airplanes common, uh -huh. then it minimizes our customers' training expenses as they move uh, up to a larger airplane or introduce another Boeing airplane into their fleet. All right. So from largest to smallest. Okay. Biggest to smallest. All right. Hit me with the lineup. In okay, so uh, in terms of size, size, we'll start with a 747-8, yeah. uh, which is, of course, the, the queen of the skies. Uh, and, you know, one will be here tomorrow uh, here at AirVenture in Cathay Pacific colors. So. And, and let me stop you right there. When I was at the Everett facility, and we got this wonderful VIP tour, which I need to thank you about once again. And some of our members are going to get to do that again yep. at the Bremerton uh, fly-in, which yep. is in August. But now I believe uh, you guys had many manufactured over 1500 of those seven yeah that's right that's right it's uh it's the queen of the skies for a lot of reasons uh -huh. you know but it it is truly a wonderful product uh, as we mentioned it's sort of uh ramping down on the production rate but it is still uh as a pilot to climb up on the uh, you know on the big airplane and grab four throttles that is a, an absolute thrill cool deal all right so biggest to smallest we got the 747 yep. as one the largest and then we go to the then we go to the triple seven and the triple seven is just an unbelievable airplane from uh uh, innovation and economic point of view. Our customers love the airplane. It's the most reliable airplane flying, and they run these incredible long-haul routes with it. Uh, you know, for example, there's two flights a day nonstop from Seattle to Dubai. Right? Wow. And so that airplane has completely reshaped what commercial aviation looks like because it has made it possible to connect all of these narrow destinations on these long, thin routes. All right. We got the 777 underneath the Yeah, but we're not going to leave it until we talk about the engines on it because well, okay. those are the biggest engines. Remember, we saw them in the factory they there. They were huge. Yeah, so that that engine, the diameter of the engine is a little bit bigger than the diameter of the fuselage of a 737. And the thrust is 115,000 pounds on each side. So when we talked about biggest, I have to talk about the great big GE engines that are on that uh, 777 because that is an unbelievable airplane. You could probably power a fleet of Cessna 172s with one of those engines. Yeah, right? well it, it'll lift a 737 vertically to kind of put it in perspective. Oh. So it's it, that is a very powerful engine. But that's what you needed to make a twin to be able to to do those long routes yeah. efficiently and effectively. And, okay. and, you know, even that airplane, I flew one from uh, a delivery flight from Seattle to Dubai, and we didn't use full fuel and still landed with about four hours of reserve when you get there. It's a, it's an airplane that just is incredible. Uh, I, I hate to put you on the spot, but about how many hours long was that uh, That particular one, I think it was about 15 and, uh, you know, the airplane, the, that particular one was a 200LR, which uh -huh. is capable of about 24 hours if you, at lightweights. Gotcha. So, and yeah. then 
uh, they can be configured for different passenger situations. Yeah, yeah. most of those uh, are depending on the airline, somewhere yeah. between three hundred fifty and four hundred seats, kind That's of a thing. That's a lot of folks. But we've actually, you know, my previous assignment at Boeing was uh, heading the Boeing Business Jet Group, and we've actually sold about uh, eight of those as VIP airplanes, as business jets. Yeah, as business jets, businesses. and those ones might have forty seats or something like that. Goodness, that yeah. would be so nice. Yeah, they're pretty cool. <laughs> you can have a band in there, and you know, and, and room for more. All the comforts of home. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So you got the triple seven now. Before we leave, before we leave that, is that the aircraft that's going to have the carbon fiber wing? That's right. We're developing a new version of the triple seven, what we call a triple seven X. Okay. And that airplane is uh, going to have an all new carbon composite wing. Uh, and that airplane is is pretty far along in the development phases. It'll fly in, in 2018, I believe is right. Gotcha. And then I'm going to uh, help you out a little bit with this. But when we were there on the floor, which I must say was just fascinating, uh, we learned that the Boeing factory itself has to be retooled for the wing yep. of that aircraft. That's right. They're, we've actually just uh, broken ground or finished, rather, a new uh, wing facility adjacent to the factory, uh, which has these massive long autoclaves in it so that we can... Uh, create the wing spars that are necessary for that big airplane. And that is truly amazing. And it really is a, an interesting facility. I know 40,000 people work at Boeing. Yeah. And it's one of the largest. Yeah, at employers. Boeing at Everett, just at in Everett. that one facility. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. That's yeah. right, because you guys have another facility not far from there. That's right. This uh, Renton factory where we make all the 737s. And, okay. uh, of course, that's the volume factory. But uh, Everett is is the big one. Gotcha. All right, so we got the the we talked about the seven four. We talked about the triple seven, and then we go to the Dreamliner, the seven eight seven. Okay, and uh, that is a phenomenal airplane. Every time you fly one of those airplanes, you come out and you think, "Man, I'm a really good pilot," because that airplane just t- makes you look good. It, it does. T- yeah, it's a phenomenal machine. Very forgiving. Like the triple seven, we actually designed it to fly exactly like the triple seven, and so the subtleties between them are kind of left to the test pilot types because they really feel identical. Uh, but both of those airplanes, you know, they have full fly-by-wire flight control systems, and they take care of everything for you. So things like when you throw out the landing gear and the flaps, there's no trim change because it automatically knows what that's going to be. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, even I did a little Cessna uh, 172 simulation flight this morning, and even in that, I needed to do a massive amount of trim when yep. I was coming in for a landing. Yeah, we've we've made it real easy in those big airplanes. That's a, one less thing to think about. Yeah, that's right. All right, so you got the 787 Dreamliner. Yeah. We're going bigger, biggest to smallest right, now. Right, and so then the next one in the lineup in Everett is the 767. Yeah. Uh, these days, most of them we're, we're building our uh, freighters, like the 767 freighter that was here uh, yesterday for uh, FedEx. At AirVenture, yeah. Here at AirVenture. We also are, are making a military version of that for the replacement of the tanker, the KC-46. Yeah. And so that airplane is uh, in the flight test program and is coming along. Okay. That's uh, that's interesting. And there's actually there's another uh, aircraft out there today that looks like it might be a tanker too. I guess I haven't even seen it. It's probably on the Boeing Plaza behind me. It is. And this year it's Boeing Centennial Plaza. That's right. Uh, Just last week in Seattle, we had a huge celebration for the 100 years of the forming of the Boeing Company uh, on July 15th. And a huge party in Seattle, and it was a big event. You know what? I noticed that also one thing that uh, Boeing is rolling out for the 100th, and uh, again, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I thought this was so cool for the next generation of potential aviators. Uh, I have a 13-year-old daughter, and I know you have a, a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. And so Boeing is rolling out some STEM programs, science, technology, right. engineering, and math That's right. programs for teachers to use. Yep. 
And I don't know how much you know about that. Again, uh, this is something I just heard about myself. Yeah, no, it's it's a huge emphasis from the company because we're looking forward and realizing that there's not enough engineers, there's not enough technicians, there's not enough pilots. And so we need to get back into the, you know, the junior high and high school level and start encouraging kids and, and giving them some uh, inspiration to move into STEM careers. And so Boeing has invested really heavily in that and is working with several different programs to, to make those education programs more fun and more engaging, uh, really with the intent of, of creating a future pool of pilots and technicians and engineers and mechanics and all the rest of it that we need. I'll tell you what, uh, what was really cool about, about that uh, Boeing project for teachers and for, for young uh, students in elementary, middle, and high school was that the level of interactivity on the internet was just so easy for teachers to use that yep. and make lesson plans out of it. Yep. So yeah, and and make fun lessons. What yeah. we one thing that we've figured out is that people learn a whole lot faster if they're having fun while they're doing it. And so that's really one of the cornerstones of that is to make education something that's compelling and and natural for people to want to do. And I just was looking online right now, and uh, you guys have a, a complete resource page at Boeing.com that folks could navigate to, especially teachers that might want to amp up their program. Yep. And they could have some of these fun lesson plans. And you're right, there's a lot of hands-on stuff. I saw some video lessons on uh, how to deploy a satellite or engineer an air-powered spinning machine. Yeah, all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah, build a plane with uh, stored energy. Pretty yeah. neat stuff. I tell everybody, I wish they'd had programs like that when I was a kid. I would have made something of myself. But now you do come from, uh, you know, Boeing is in your family history, so yep. you do come from that. Yeah, that's right. My dad worked for the Boeing company for 50 years, and uh, uh, I kind of follow along in his footsteps. He he did a lot to shape the company, uh, and he kind of introduced me to, to EAA. Uh, we came here for the first time in 1975, and uh, I was, you know, I was just a 13-year-old kid, but uh, we became addicted to it and have been here now pretty much every year ever since. When you were little and you came over here with your dad, did you guys fly over? Uh, the very first time we, we were driving, we, uh-huh. uh, we were moving from Seattle to Washington, D.C. because uh-huh. dad was running the Boeing office in D.C. And uh, we literally, dad said, hey, I've heard about some air show in Wisconsin. It's on the way. Let's stop. Just heard about some little air show. <laughs> some little air show. Uh-huh. And so we did. We stopped and dad and I just couldn't pry ourselves away. So we ended up staying for the rest of the week uh, while my mom and my sister went on and then dad and I've been back pretty much every year since and we lost dad last year but uh, he was still flying up until 93 so I've had an unbelievable family connection into aviation through my dad well sorry to hear about your dad my old man also introduced me to aviation when I was a youngster and then here we are now yep. so we I guess we owe it to ourselves to introduce the next generation absolutely to aviation as well yeah so, so you've been coming up to uh, air venture for Almost, you said 40 years? 42. 42 yeah. years. Yeah. And you've flown GA aircraft. Almost all of that. I learned to fly when I was 16, sold it on my 16th birthday, and got my private on my 17th. And as soon as I got my private, my first planning was, when am I going to go to Oshkosh? And so that summer, uh, I took a 16-year-old buddy, and we piled our, our tent and our sleeping bag in the cub and, and came from Seattle all the way out here and uh, slept underneath the wing and you know did the whole experience. So That's uh, great. It goes way back. Which, I got to tell you, 
in connection with that, about, what was it, five years ago, I brought the 787 in here. You did. And to have made the full circle of, of you know, coming in a Piper Cub and camping under your wing to showing up in a 787 and being towed onto the plaza, that was a, a career highlight moment. How did it make you feel inside? Oh, I was just over the moon. The absolute cool as it gets. Your daddy would have been proud. Dad, dad was here, yeah. and uh, dad Good. was pretty proud of that moment. Cool deal. Now, when you brought the Boeing aircraft in here, did you uh, fly solo? Did you have a crew with you? Well, it's uh, yeah, it's always a crew, uh-huh. right? Um, and I came with Mike Carricker, who's our 787 chief pilot at the time. Uh-huh. Uh, and Mike and I uh, were having trouble convincing the company that it was a good, you know, good idea to come, but we knew it was the right thing to do. And so Mike and I finally, we, we looked at each other and we said, you know what, let's just put it on the schedule. And if somebody really important calls and says you can't go, then, then we'll back down. And so we put it on the schedule, and sure enough, my phone started ringing. But instead of people saying no, it was people saying, hey, have you got any extra seats on that thing? Oh, how about that? <laughs> so we ended up bringing, literally every seat was uh, was taken by Boeing employees and a whole lot of senior executives, VPs and whatnot that Fantastic. wanted to come. So it was a great day. So you put it on the schedule thinking, hopefully no one's going to notice this. We'll just we'll yeah. just take one of these We kind of thought we out. might sneak it out under uh-huh. the covers, and it ended up getting a little more publicity than that. Oh, I think that's great. It yeah. set a nice precedent. It really was a great deal. Our, our only real disappointment was that we could only steal it for a day yeah and uh, so we were really here just got it we got up at about three o'clock in the morning made the trip kept it open as long as we could and then had to take it back that day and I know we disappointed a lot of people but it was still the best we could come up with on the time that's really interesting and that also goes a lot uh, to talk about some of the Boeing employees and, and a little bit about the work ethic is that folks got up at two o'clock in the morning to to get to the airport and get off yeah. the ground at three and- well we had to the airplane was still in the flight test program and so it was a busy airplane yeah. and we actually worked really hard to figure out how do we could put a couple of kind of low impact tests in so we could sort of justify that no this wasn't just purely Mike and Steve having fun I gotcha but it was a good you know it was a good thing to do very nice very nice alright we drift a little bit away from the subject I'm going to bring us back right. towards the lineup of the aircraft uh, the last one we talked about was the 767 yeah and that goes to um, some you still have some overseas clients for that as well yes although primarily these days it's freighters for FedEx uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and the tankers for the U.S. Air Force. And gotcha. there's a couple other customers in there. And going from largest to smallest again, what's, what goes next? Well, so then, then we jump to the 737. And, uh, you know, so the family connection there, my dad was the director of engineering on the original 737. So I still feel of that airplane as sort of like uh, that's the family machine. A connection. That's the one that I have uh, most, most love in my heart for. That's great. Um, it's the most fun to fly, partly because that's the one I have the most time in. And so for me, it's like blue jeans and tennis shoes to climb in a 3.7. Gotcha. Very comfortable in that. Yeah. Can you describe how that feels to fly that aircraft? Well, like I said, it's just an airplane that is that I'm very comfortable with. Uh, it is uh, because of the common commonality with the other 737 models that we've built. It uh, doesn't have some of the things like fly-by-wire and whatnot that the 787 has, but it is a much more... Um, more of a sports car kind of a feel because of it being, you know, a little bit smaller airplane and a little more powerful flight controls. I was going to ask you how sporty it felt. It, it is sporty, uh, particularly when you fly it. You know, when we fly them, like on their their acceptance flights and whatnot, we don't have any passengers and yeah. we usually have a fairly small fuel load because we're only flying a few hours. And so when we fly them, it, they are light and they are sporty. They really go. That's uh, cool. You know, we build them in Renton, which is a 5,500 foot long runway. And you can operate in and out of there at those kind of weights, no problem at all. 
so you've taken us through the lineup. Is there anything else beyond that? Oh, I think we covered it. Yeah. Now, let's segue a little bit to general aviation. I know you're a big general aviation pilot and an AOPA member, which yep. we appreciate yep. that. Yeah, a lifetime guy. <laughs> and we also appreciate you helping us get that VIP tour organized Glad for I can Bremerton do it. Yep. Uh, visitors. So you have a couple of different airplanes that, that you fly around, and you maintain a lot of currency in the GA world. Yep. Tell us about the, the aircraft that you have and that you have access to. Well, sort of my stable these days is a, uh, a Republic CB, a 1947 amphibian. Uh, that one is really slow, but as much fun as one can have. So that's uh, that's sort of the, the, the first toy. So let's uh, ask a little bit about seaplane ratings. How did you get involved in the CB and where'd you get your rating? The primary flight instructor that I got my ratings from was one of these old school instructors. In fact, he was, uh, he'd been an instructor since the 30s. Yeah. And uh, he had a 172 on floats. And so I got my float plane rating in his 172. And that was decades ago, right? And the hard part about float plane flying is you can't rent a float plane and you can never sort of get going on it. So uh, several years ago, I finally said, you know, I'm just going to have to go buy an airplane so that we can get over the hurdle here. Uh-huh. I called up a few of my buddies that kind of were in the same spot, and we all put our, uh, you know, broke our piggy banks open and went and found ourselves a nice CB and, and uh, been enjoying it ever since. Well, the Washington area is really conducive to float plane flying. It's a phenomenal area for float plane flying. Tons of lakes, lots of interesting places to go. And uh, of course, the CB being an amphibian really opens up. You you know, you can hit the lakes and still go hit all the little airports. Gotcha. And it's a classic airplane, too. It is. And, and uh, our airplane, we've kept it kind of original. So it's it's back to old school, simple VFR and even the original Franklin engine, uh, which is a little underpowered. But uh, we just fly it at light weights and, and we have a lot of fun with it. You know, I think that's really a, a good thing to do is to keep the fleet going, some of the vintage aircraft and keep them, you know, as a tip of the hat to the folks who made those and made those designs. I had an air coop for a number of years and restored it and really had a kick flying that yeah. aircraft. And it's just a neat thing to do to keep history alive. Yeah, yeah. And that's part of what we're doing with the B. Nice. Very yeah. nicely done. So now, um, before we move on to the other aircraft that you fly um, in the GA fleet, tell me a little bit about why would a regular land-based pilot want to get a seaplane rating? Oh, anybody that has flown a seaplane will be able to tell you that it is just flat cool. Uh, and I have to tell a little bit of a story. My, yeah. my 10-year-old son, he rates every landing that we make. And, and I, you know, it's, he's kind of like the East German judge, and it is really rare to get a good score out of Finn. Uh-huh. Well, we were flying the other day, and we landed on Lake Sammamish right where I live, and the water was perfect, and I just put it on as smooth as you can, which you can only do in a float plane. You know, oh. one of those landings where you really can't even tell you've touched down. He gave me an 11. So he gave you an 11 past the 10. <laughs> he gave me an 11. So nice. that's that's why you fly float planes is for that moment where you have a landing that's just off the charts. I bet it felt pretty good. Oh, it was awesome. <laughs> nice, nice. Was, well, of course, you have to read the water. You do. Just like a golfer reads a, a golf green. You do. And, and in a glassy water landing like that, it's a very special technique, and, and you eat up a lot of lake doing it. But uh, when you get it right, Right, it is something special. Now that also does teach us a little bit more about being on the numbers and aircraft control absolutely. That, that land-based pilots could use. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Those yeah. glassy water landings, you are literally trying to manage your rate of descent somewhere between 100 feet a minute and 50 feet a minute. Okay. And so you're, you know, you're little, literally down there looking at the vertical speed that normally you'd never even notice the difference between 50 feet and 75 feet. But when you're doing glassy water work, that's the kind of precision you're looking for. So you're really scrutinizing that. Yeah, you really are 
paying attention to it. Awesome. And the payoff is huge when you get it right. It sounds like your son enjoyed that ride. Yeah, he did. <laughs> All right, cool deal. All right, so you have a couple other aircraft. I yeah. think you have a Cessna. Yeah, I have a 180. Uh-huh. Uh, it's kind of a bush plane set up with, uh, you know, the big tires and big engine and all the rest. It's uh, it's a great airplane for getting around. In addition to all those lakes in Seattle, we have some beautiful uh, mountain flying in Idaho and, and Montana and Wyoming. Sure. And so that's the airplane to access those. And uh, this uh, Cessna 180 is tail wheel Tail dragger, yep, right? yep. Yeah, I grew up in a tail dragger, and to me, that's kind of where, where the wheels belong on little airplanes. Oh, that's a real big difference than flying one of the 737s. Yes, uh, the wheels belong in the, in, in the tricycle configuration on the big airplanes, yeah. but on a little airplane, uh, the tail wheel is where it should be. That's where the engineers meant for them to be in the first <laughs> Exactly. Place. Gotcha. And uh, after the Cessna 180, you've got... I have an Aerostar that was, okay. it was actually Dad's airplane, uh, and it's been our sort of uh, family go-to machine for long trips for a long time. It's uh, been to here to Oshkosh, God, I can't even count how many times. It probably knows the way by itself that is outstanding and that's a tip of the hat to your dad to keep that plane going and and maintain it and yeah well and that's the airplane he was still flying at 93 so you know if there's anybody that was it's probably the most complicated airplane in the world and yet that was still what he was comfortable what makes it so complicated well that particular one is um, what they call a a 700p that has all the mods so it has two engines and four turbochargers and pressurized and intercoolers and alternators and everything you can imagine Uh, and then adding to it was he was an engineer at heart, and so he had added all sorts of engine instrumentation and whatnot to it to be able to do his engineering kind of analysis on it. So very complex airplane. And then you started flying that with him at a at pretty young yeah, age? Or? Yeah, well, let's see. He got that in 86, okay. so I, I had already been flying for quite a while. Okay. Well, that's an interesting aircraft and another another design that was a little bit ahead of its time, right? Yeah, very a very advanced design, very fast. Uh-huh. Um, it's an airplane that has teeth like like any airplane but that one maybe the teeth are a little a little sharper than some of the others that can bite you is what yeah. you're saying yeah gotcha. but with right training and with the right experience it's a wonderful airplane great cross-country machine gotcha uh, i always flight plan for 225 knots in it and uh we, we can put some miles behind us with that airplane and can you stuff it full of family and gear and things like that for us uh when dad was still here it was it was him uh, my wife and i and our two kids and pretty much everything you could fit and because he had a high gross weight kit on it you could literally carry all that and enough fuel to go somewhere so it was a great airplane that sounds really still special. is a great airplane they're sexy looking too. it's a great looking airplane and yeah. great fun to fly gotcha. the flight controls in that airplane are actually pretty analogous to the 737 so when you ask about why is the 37 fun to fly well anybody who's flown an aerostar already has a pretty good sense of what the control harmony feels like in a 37 that's the kind of information we needed that's <laughs> cool stuff so talking a little bit about your lineup your personal lineup and a little bit about the big iron that you have what kind of tips could you give the regular general aviation pilot that you know everyone always dreams about well hey if i had to i could get in the cockpit of an airliner if there was an emergency oh they could they could yeah they could uh the big airplanes are actually easier to fly than the little ones yeah Um, and uh as you move kind of up through the the jets and up into the boeing airplanes the bigger airplanes have more inertia and they basically things happen at a little slower pace mind you you're going across the ground pretty fast but the airplane itself is very stable and and relatively easy to fly Gotcha. So you know you're not getting bumped around as much right. as uh, in a Piper or Cessna. That's or right. Serious. Gotcha. Uh, any any key takeaways that you want our podcast listeners from Hangar Talk to know about any any plans from Boeing or any plans uh, that that you think might be 
worthwhile to check out in the future? Well, I'm really glad you brought up the STEM education thing. That's something that that is really in my heart, and you know, it's it's forefront at the Boeing Company that uh, we all need to figure out how to bring forward to the next generation of folks that are going to take on beyond us. And so, I, you know, I've been really lucky to have grown up in the right environment to sort of have aviation become my passion. And my goal is to help figure out how to inspire the next uh, next generation of young folks to come up and, and enjoy the same kind of career that I've had. And that's a great takeaway. It's a good ending for Hangar Talk this week with Steve Taylor. We really appreciate the uh, help on that. And we look forward to seeing you guys out at Boeing at Everett in about uh, a month from now. Yeah, coming up soon. All right, thanks again. Thanks, have, a, have a great evening. All right, David, I don't, I don't know who's more lucky, uh, him for getting to do that every day or you for getting to, to talk to him and experience it all, but that's pretty cool. It was a great experience, and we're so happy to have folks like that on board with GA. Yeah. Thank you to Stephen. That's really cool. All right, so that's it for this week. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. You can find us on aopa.org slash hangertalk. Email us at hangertalk at aopa.org. Now we're on iTunes and at Sporty's Takeoff app. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Ian. <laughs>